I'm not, I'm not preaching this morning, um, but I felt with everything going on, I want to give a little pastoral word uh, before um, Amber comes up and teaches. So a little over a week ago, um, I'm sure many of you got the news of the Supreme Court overruling uh, Roe versus Wade. And so, yes. So uh, I think there is... Uh, things to be celebratory about, and I'm going to go into this a little bit. Um, I'm humbly going to say I'm not going to be able to address every facet of this issue, right? I'm not going to be able to answer every question or talk through every single thing, um, but this is what I felt like the Lord pressed on my heart, and uh, I, I didn't say anything last week. I just wanted to take some time to pray and just pray and ask, like, okay, Lord, what's, what's the one thing or what's a few things I could kind of speak to? And, and so... Um, what I came back to as I was just spent some time Tuesday is the Sermon on the Mount that we're preaching on, right? We are preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and I was reminded again of this, this passage here in Matthew 5. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So I just wanted just to, uh, just, uh, to just speak to a little bit uh, of how do we respond to a situation like this, a decision like this? How do we as followers of Jesus, all right, with that as our identity, how, how do we be set apart, a light, a refuge uh, in a post-row world, okay? I just want to speak into that, if you will let me. Uh, I think it's important to note what this ruling actually means. There's a lot of different perspectives. It doesn't ban abortions, uh, but it's no longer a federal right to access uh, an abortion if they so do desire, but it gives individual states, right, uh, the power to legislate. And some states, little will be changed, right? It, it may even become more accessible because there'll be these safe harbor uh, states to go to. And uh, in a state like ours, uh, we, they, they, our government has passed uh, a ban after six weeks. So access will be limited. Anything after six weeks, right, they will have to go outside of the state. I want to also, important to note, again, as followers of Jesus and from Christians from around the world, we place a sacred value on children born and unborn. And historically, Christians have done this for thousands of years. Right? If you look at the scriptures, Psalm 139, for it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Scriptures throughout the Old Testament, uh, even the New Testament, God has miraculously involved in the life of the womb from Sarah, Hannah, the mother of Samson, Elizabeth, and of course Mary, the mother of Jesus. This has been one of the ways Christians have been salt and light when the culture around them did not see the inherent value in children, babies born and unborn. For the early church in the ancient world, children in general were just seen as commodities or property. In the Greco-Roman world, both abortion and infanticide were widely practiced, mainly among female babies due to their lack of status and what value they brought to the family. So most Roman families would only have one daughter uh, because of the value that they would have brought. However, the early church unanimously and strongly opposed abortion from its earliest days. Pastor John Tyson, he had a great quote that I, I felt like it, to share it. 
He said their teaching, again, the sacredness and value of the born and unborn, did not lead to judgment, but to deep compassion as disfigured children from failed abortions were adopted and cared for by followers of Jesus. Children given to exposure or infanticide were cared for, adopted by Christians, and taken into their care. Orphanages sprung up, often run and funded by Christians to care for unwanted children in the Greco-Roman world. Christians did not just believe life mattered, they showed it with their actions in category-defining ways that have echoed through the centuries down to us. The church has had a consistent witness for thousands of years that life begins in the womb. All children born and are born are sacred and bear the image of God. And I want to speak to just one little facet of this. All right, I can't speak to all the different facets of this, but I, as I was reading this book, uh, Live No Lies by John Mark Comer, he addressed uh, one specific facet of this, and I thought this was interesting. Uh, in the 1980s, we, they have began screening uh, for Down syndrome, starting to practice in the 1980s. Uh, they don't have reliable statistics, but estimates show that America aborts 67% of babies with prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome. European countries even have, I, uh, even have higher statistics. Iceland is close to 100% due to access for testing and accessibility to abortion. One Icelandic doctor recently said, we have basically eradicated almost Down syndrome from society. That's a sad reality, right? When we think about uh, Genesis, where we would say these people have been made in the image of God. And so in a ruling like this, where the rights of the unborn and attempts of saving more lives, we can celebrate this decision. All right, it's our hope that it will lead to lives being saved. But I also want to challenge us that it's not necessarily a time for a victory parade. Uh, It's going to be contested. There is going to be a fight. And I would argue that now is the time for a sober celebration that leads to action, to be an active witness with our convictions. Unfortunately, statistics have also shown that those who have an unplanned pregnancy and are contemplating abortion or those who have had an abortion see the church as the last place they would go to find love, support, and healing. And I would challenge us, we get to be a part of changing that narrative, don't we? First act, I'm going to list a few action steps and then I'm going to pray. But one of those action steps is uh, we do need to champion women, all women, as Jesus taught by his life and witness in the Gospels. We, we value life, and we value, and Jesus values the marginalized. And again, some women are feeling marginalized, they're feeling afraid, they're feeling vulnerable. And, and there's lots of reasons maybe one would consider abortion, um, but again, it's those who don't have the support, often the health insurance, the child care. And so we must become a place of hope and healing for weary women in our world weary of proving their worth, weary of shame and for their mistakes, weary of wondering if there is truly a safe place for them to flourish in the world. Jesus created space like that, and we must too. Again, we are a city on a hill, and we care about life, not just birth. Uh, I've, I, our, one of our sister churches, Vineyard Columbus, they have a value life ministry. They, they provide a safe haven for women and their unborn children. They provide a complete support system which will result in physically and spiritually healthy moms and children from the beginning of the pregnancy throughout the entirety of the child and mother's life. They provide support for women who recently had a new one and feel they have nowhere to turn and offer their support for women and their babies up through the age of two years old. Again, it's, we're thinking whole life. 
Uh, Pregnancy Decision Health Center here in Lancaster does something very similar. Again, we have to be consistent in being pro-life. For the unborn, the born, the orphan, the poor, the immigrant, um, the widow, I love the phrase, we're pro-life from womb to tomb. And again, we affirm our commitment to the lordship of Jesus and his kingdom over political ideology. As Augustine noted in his book, The City of God, we are citizens of, of two kingdoms, the city of man and the city of God. And though there is much common grace in the world, we are called to work for God's kingdom where we can as our ultimate hope uh, is in the city of God, not the city of man. He wrote, the earthly city glorifies in itself. The heavenly city glorifies in the Lord. For some Americans, this feels like victory. For others, defeat. But as for followers, Jesus, it's a reminder that we ultimately work and long for another kingdom beyond this temporary one where there will be no more death or sorrow or crying. All tears will be wiped away, as Rachel just said. We put our trust not in a political party, not in a politician, not into our social media influencers, but we, we put our trust in King Jesus and his kingdom. Amen. That's what we're working for. And I have one last action. And I preached on this a couple weeks ago. It's a test to put the love and kindness of Jesus in his kingdom on display by how we treat those who are either considering abortion, who've had an abortion, and to even those who would disagree and oppose us, right? This is the maturity Jesus calls us to, to be perfect, or in his world, to be mature, to be like Jesus was to love not just our neighbors, but to love our enemies, people who oppose us. This is what we should be known for as followers of Jesus, by our love, our compassion, our grace, not just truth. Again, there's, there's a lot more I could be said, uh, but I, I did want to give a moment. Uh, sometimes silence can be filled with different meaning-making, meaning we think the worst, You may agree, you may only agree slightly, you may disagree totally. Again, my hope is that we as a church uh, live out the teachings of Jesus. That we become the type of people who display the inner righteousness that Jesus has been talking about in this cultural moment. And may we just view all of this, again, through a kingdom lens, looking to King Jesus. All right, good morning. How are we? Good. I just want to take a minute and look at your faces. Hi. I am really excited to talk to you this morning because I really feel like, so the Lord has already shown up and he's already spoken to our hearts, to some of your hearts. Um, And I just feel really strongly that uh, the message for this morning, where we're at in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, um, all of the things that we've been talking about are so important to Jesus. That's why this is his like manifesto. This was like his big sermon. He knew that when he came to teach the Sermon on the Mount, he was reorienting all of his children's thought processes and the way they view doing life back to the way life was originally meant to be. His desire for his heart for his children Like he knew, like I'm gonna teach them how to come back to the Father and to do life the way we wanted to do life with you all along. 
So every sermon we've been preaching on the Sermon on the Mount has been so important. But this morning, we're, um, we're at this like pivoting point where Jesus um, starts talking about how to pray. And this is so important to the Father. So I'm really excited to share this with you um, because this is really, like the Lord wants to be with you. He wants to commune with you. He wants to do life with you. Um, so I'm just going to pray for us one more time real quick, um, and then we'll move into it. So Jesus, I just, um, I just speak peace over our church family. I speak against distraction from the things buzzing on our phones and those little watches on our wrists. We speak against the enemy wanting to distract us and to not really hear, like not just with our physical ears, but with our hearts, to really hear your heart for your children. Because that's like, we just recognize that's the last thing that the enemy wants is for his children to hear from their father. Because when we start hearing from you, life changes. So Jesus, we just speak against distraction and we just choose as a family to be present to the people next to us, to our physical bodies in the seats. We feel the, we feel the weight of our body sitting in the chair. We tell our minds to be quiet. We tell our hearts to listen. Jesus, we love you. We just ask for you to come. All right, so... Like I said, we are picking up in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew 6 still. I think we're going to be in Matthew 6 for like a whole year. I don't know if you've ever had a year-long sermon series where you're just in one chapter, but that's what it feels like we're in. But uh, we are picking up in Matthew chapter 6 at the Lord's Prayer. Johnny touched on this just a little bit last week, but he kind of hopped over the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So as I was taking some time to read through um, just different, some books and some word studies on prayer, I found this really interesting, um, I kind of felt like it was a little bit of a problem, because my goal this morning is to work our way through the Lord's Prayer, but everything that I read spent like 80% of the time talking about what prayer is, and then like the last 20% of the time actually talking through the Lord's Prayer. And so I found myself just continually wrestling with this. Like we have to understand like what prayer even is. I have to know what prayer is, like what, what is it? Why do we do it? Why is it important? What was God's original design for it? So what I want you to do real quick is I want you to turn and talk to someone near you and I want you to share your experience of prayer growing up as a child or you can answer the question, if, you, if someone asked you, what is prayer, I want you to like share what you would say prayer is, okay? So I'm going to give you like one minute, turn and talk to someone, what was your experience with prayer, or how would you define prayer with someone?
All right, hopefully that was enough time. Just trying to look. Joel was still talking, but Joel likes to talk a lot, so he was not a good example to see if people were done talking. <laughs> okay, so I wish I could like, if this were true Mrs. Me in classroom, I'd like get to have you all talk with me, but that's very hard to do in a, in a larger room. Um, but I hope that was helpful for you to like hear someone else's experience. We all have lots of different experiences with prayer. Um, some of us may not know very much with, about prayer at all. Um, and kind of defining prayer can be a little awkward because um, when we think about where we see prayer like in culture around us, really like the closest thing that we have to prayer is like this idea of like meditation. So like taking something, whether that's scripture or some type of concept or idea, and just allowing our mind to think about it. So like meditation kind of falls in the realm of prayer, um, but really prayer is really only something we see like in a religious context. Um, so, so prayer is, is really kind of a weird thing to talk about, uh, but I think it's really important for us to understand what prayer is, okay? So um, when I am trying to figure out what something is, or what I, more clearly should I say, trying to figure out God's original design for something. I love going back to the creation story to see, like, where do I see this idea in Scripture? Like, because I can kind of figure out, like, this is always pointing me back to the creation story. Like, this is how, what God wanted it to be. I may not get to experience it like that all the time, but this is, like, his heart for prayer. Now, prayer is really difficult to find in creation story because if you think about it, prayer is really like a physical human being talking to a non-human being, right? It's a physical body talking to an invisible body or an invisible floating orb, I don't know, whatever, however you envision God, that's what prayer really is. It's, it's a physical human talking to something invisible. And I bet if I were to ask some of you what's something that makes prayer difficult, you would say, well, it kind of feels like a one-way conversation, like it's just me and my thoughts, I get distracted, um, I don't know that I really hear anything back, so it just feels like me blabbing, and I, and I don't really, like, sometimes I have a hard time getting anything out of it. Would that be anyone? Like, would anyone say, yeah, that's kind of my experience, like it feels like a one-way conversation. You don't have to be afraid to raise your hand, by the way. You can talk to me. Yes, I saw two hands. Um, so that makes, that makes prayer really difficult. So it's hard to see prayer in the creation story because we see this idea of Adam and Eve actually have a tangible relationship with Jesus, with God. Like we know in scripture that Adam and Eve walked and talked with God. They have this relationship. In fact, after they sinned, we, read, we have that scripture that says that Jesus or God was coming and he was coming in the cool of the day and he was looking for them. He was confused because like they weren't there. So it kind of implies like they have this relationship where they're just, they're together. Okay. So even though this isn't a human being talking to an invisible being, we still see this idea of prayer in the sense that Adam and Eve, the creation, had a daily relationship with God, the creator. And so they just have this communion, this communion, meaning they're just doing things together. They're talking back and forth with one another, okay? So looking at the creation story, I can tell that prayer, even though it's a little different now, 
in essence, is a conversation or talking with God. And not just like at a specific time. Adam and Eve didn't have like a schedule, oh, it's three o'clock, time to talk with God, right? This was their lifestyle. This was just the way they did life. They talked with God probably when they went to the grocery store, definitely that. Um, they talked to God when they got stuck in traffic. I know that for sure. Um, so they just had this lifestyle of communing with God. So on one hand, we can say that prayer is communion with God, okay? The other, thing, the other thing that we see between the relationship of Adam and Eve and God is that not just that they like hung out together, but God like gave them an assignment. Like he wanted to do creation with them. Like, I love the part of the creation story when God brings the animals to Adam, and he, like, has them name them. Like, I think that's so cool. I kind of wish that, like, instead of Adam, it was Dr. Seuss, because I just think we would have really cooler names for some of our animals. But, like, that idea that, like, God didn't, like, choose all the things and then plop Adam and Eve into it. Like, he created them, and then, like, he wanted to create and be creative with his children to the point that they got to name the animals. And we also see where God gave Adam and Eve an assignment. They were, they were assigned to go and rule over the earth to have dominion, which is just a fancy word for controlling it. So we see this relationship with God and Adam and Eve where they're not just talking with him and then God keeps doing his godly things. Like God actually wanted us to be a part of the being in control piece. So our relationship with God isn't just communing with him, but it's also co-reigning with him. Make sense? So, but we know our story doesn't end there because sin entered, and then we lost our ability to be in the presence of God. So now, this is where we see talking with God looking a bit more like prayer because now we're separated from God's presence, and so now it's this fleshly being trying to talk to this invisible thing that I can't be near anymore because my sin separates me from him. And so this is where we start to see that idea of prayer. So then we go into the Old Testament where we're separated from God, but even still we see this idea of communion and co-reigning with God. I, am, I was thinking about the story um, uh, Daniel in the lion's den. Right? Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because of his prayer life with God. It says that he had a regular um, schedule, a regular prayer life with God. So we still see this idea of prayer being a communion with God. And then when Daniel got thrown into the lion's den, um, and then he prayed to God, and he asked God to save him, and God shut the mouths of the lions. Or if you watch the VeggieTales version, they get pizza. That was my particular um, favorite version of that story. And yes, I did watch the whole episode of Daniel in the Lion's Den, VeggieTales version, while prepping for the sermon. So, even in the Old Testament, even when we get separated from God, we still see this idea of prayer playing out in our relationship with God, where we're still communing with we're still talking with him, and we're still co-reigning with him. Then the best part, we move into the New Testament, where Jesus comes to start setting things right again, right? We, we talk about this a lot here. Things aren't fully back to the original design, 
but we are always pointing ourselves back in that direction of the way God intended life to be, whether that's through our actions or through our words. We're always reorienting ourselves back to the original design. And so Jesus, as the perfect example for prayer, we see these same ideas about prayer. Jesus often went off alone to be with God. So Jesus is modeling prayer as communion with God. We also see where Jesus gives his disciples authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to bring deliverance, right? To meet people's needs, excuse me. We also see in some of the other books of the Bible, after Jesus is gone, like in 2 Corinthians, where Peter reminds us that we've been reconciled with Christ and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. So he's saying our job is to enter a situation that we can identify that is not the way it's supposed to be and be a part of returning it back to the way it's supposed to be. This is, this is our job. So to go back to our question about what is prayer, we could say that prayer is the vehicle in which we commune and co-reign with God. Okay, that's the purpose of prayer, is to commune and to co-reign with God. Now, I want to talk real quick about what it means to do something with God. Because I think we all would say, like, God wants to do life with me, and he's given me authority to cast out demons and heal the sick. That's really uncomfortable and awkward, so, you know, that's a whole other sermon for another day. But, like, we all believe that. But I think sometimes we don't actually get it, that like God wants to co-create with us, okay? So I want to use this example. Um, when I was younger, and I still lived at home with my parents, um, my siblings were really little, and they liked to bake with me. They loved to come into the kitchen and bake with me. And so like they had these little chairs, and we'd get them out, and they would all put them around the island, and then they'd stand on the chair so they'd be tall enough to reach all of the things in the, in the kitchen counter. And so I'd, we'd get out all of our ingredients. And then at first, I discovered this thing about me. Like, they would want to crack the eggs, but I really didn't want eggshells in my brownie, right? Or they wanted to stir the bowl, but like I knew what that meant if they stirred the bowl most of it would get on the counter. So I had this realization like, oh, I don't actually want to bake with them. I just want them to be near me while I bake the brownies and I want them to watch. And I think that's what we think God does. I think we think that God wants us to be near him, but he's still the boss that does all the things and calls all the shots. And if I get involved, I might just make a mess. But God is not afraid of your messes. He's not afraid of you getting into the work with him. He knows that some things you've gotten, you've understood as you've grown up, and some things you have yet to learn. And he's not afraid of that. Another example of this would be when I would organize my classroom at the beginning of the year. Um, one year I really wanted my students to have ownership of like where our stuff was in the room. And I didn't just get my students to come and okay, you're gonna put the pencils there. 
and you're going to put all of our dry erase markers there, and you're going to put all the baskets in the cubbies this way. No, I had to like relinquish control and say, where do you think the pencils should go? And then I let them do it because I wanted them to be a part of the creation of our room together. That is God's heart for us. And I think this can be difficult because it kind of steps on our theological toes of God knows everything and God's in control of everything. So like, if God knows everything, why do I pray? If God's in control of everything, why get involved? If he already knows what's gonna happen. And I'm not saying that those things incorrect. Sorry, I thought my mic went out. I'm not saying those things are incorrect. I'm just saying they're not a full picture of who our God is. He can be fully in control and have knowledge of all things and be like, I can't wait to see what you're going to choose to do with this, right? Like, I can't wait for you to tell me which way you want to go. We can spend months praying about, oh, I don't know like what job God wants me to take. I don't know what direction he wants me to go. I don't know how to make this choice, and I wish he would just tell me really clearly. And sometimes God is just saying, I'm with you left or right. I'm interested in what you want to do. You're already spending time with me. I'm going to honor that. Which direction do you want to go? I got your back. Whether you go left or right, I'm going to make it all work out for your good anyway. He's interested in your ideas. He's interested in the things that burn in your heart. Because he created you. He knows that it's already in there. He loves his children that are passionate about computer programming. And he loves his children that are passionate about medical research. He loves all the things and he knows the way he designed you. And he's interested in your ideas that was the original design. He wants to be with you, and he wants to co-reign with you. Got it? All right. So now the rest of my sermon, like the actual sermon, is the Lord's Prayer. You know that thing I'm supposed to get around to here? So in Matthew 5, now that we have like this understanding of God's heart for us, now we can take and look at God's model of prayer in Matthew chapter um, 6, excuse me, and um, we can look at God's heart for our prayer life, all right? We already know the purpose is to commune and to co-reign, but Jesus gives us like an explicit example of what prayer can look like. And just like all of our other sermons, Jesus isn't giving us a rule to follow. He's giving us the heart he's looking for, right? When I was up here a couple weeks ago and we talked about anger, like it wasn't a rule, it was, I'm, this is the heart I'm looking for. Same with the Lord's Prayer. This is not the only way the words get to come out of your mouth. This is a guideline of the heart that he's looking for in our communion and our co-reigning with him. Okay? So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 6. And we are going to start, let's see, verse 5. That's where we're starting. So it starts off. By telling us how not to pray. And this is the part Johnny talked about last week, so I'm not going to go into it too much. But the main idea was we're not looking for approval and acceptance through our words. Okay? We're not using big words. We're not using a lot of words. Now, big words are not the problem. Some of us really love big words, and that's just how we are. 
All the English teachers in the room are like, yeah, sometimes my brain just uses big words, right? Big words aren't the problem. Also, long prayers aren't the problem. He's saying when you're using big words and you're going on and on and on because you're trying to seek some kind of acceptance or approval from people around you, that's what he's not interested in, okay? So he starts off by telling us we are not looking for acceptance or approval through your prayer life. And sometimes I think we think, um, well, you know, praying out loud with big words that's not a problem because I feel really uncomfortable praying for people. So you don't have to worry about that. I can check that off my box. I don't like to pray out loud. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. So praying long prayers with big words, that's no problem, Jesus. Cool. Also, not praying for someone because we're afraid we're not going to be approved or acknowledged or thought something positive about us is also not acceptable. We were designed to commune and co-reign. If there's something on our hearts, we need to follow through with it and be obedient, okay? No matter what, whether it's choosing lots of words or withdrawing and choosing no words out of fear, our heart is never to find acceptance or approval from other people because that comes from our Father. All right, next part. Jesus starts by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay. This is a personal invitation to pause and to center your heart around who God is. Okay. Now, we could probably go around the room and all share a name for God that makes us feel really uncomfortable. Like, it just feels weird to call him daddy. I'm not doing it. Right? But then other people have words that like, man, when I, call, when I, when I center my mind and I just address God with this name, it just like, it warms my heart. Right? So Jesus is inviting us when we begin to pray, center your mind on who God is to you. Center your mind on who God is to you. Whatever name that is, that's what you call him. Whatever it takes to bring your heart back to that place of, yeah, I'm with my father. Right? Okay, next part. <clears throat> Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is that co-reigning peace that we've talked about. We talk about this scripture a lot. This is a, a strong root in our vineyard values, right? We're identifying the things that are not as they should be, and we are calling, out, calling it out and making it as if it is so, okay? Now, this can be tricky because we know that sometimes when we pray for healing, when we pray for deliverance, we don't always get it the first time or the second time or the third time or the fourth time, right? We are in the now and the not yet. But Jesus is saying this is important. It is important that you are mindful, always mindful of being aware of the things that are not in my original design because I need you to call it out and to help me reorient the earth back to its original design. This is important. This is an important part of our daily life. And it's really easy 
to just kind of skip that part because we get so discouraged when we pray for someone and then they don't see the healing or they don't see the breakthrough. And we have that experience over and over and over again and we think, what is the point? It's not happening. I'm just going to stop doing it because I don't like feeling disappointed. I don't like feeling uncomfortable. I don't like letting people down. What is the point? But Jesus is saying, this is important. This is part of your design. Don't stop interceding. Next part. Give us, our, give us today our daily bread. Now bread here is symbolic for just our needs. Just our needs. And I think this is a really important piece that the Lord wants you to hear. Some of you have physical needs. Some of you have mental, emotional needs. Some of you have spiritual needs. Right now, you have them. Jesus is saying, I want to talk to you about them. I want to talk to you about your needs. We have a lot of walls sometimes that we put up because we don't understand. Like, God, if you're so good and you're in control, then how come this is happening to me? How come I can't seem to break through the stronghold of depression or anxiety? Why can I not seem to break through this um, unemployment season? Why are our finances constantly in a wreck? If you, if you are so good and so faithful, why am I in this situation? Why, no matter what I try, I can't seem to get breakthrough? Jesus is not afraid of those thoughts. But we're not going to get anywhere if we don't talk to God about them. Okay? I've been teaching this class this summer called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and every week what we're talking about is we're not just addressing the behavior we see on our surface, we're going deep and asking why is that there? Those are the things that God wants to hear. You're feeling anxious, talk to me about that. Why do you think that is? You're feeling, you're feeling nervous about your finances, talk to me about that. I wanna hear from you, tell me what you're afraid of. Tell me what you've lost. Tell me the injustice you experienced. Tell me the thing you think is going to happen. Jesus wants to hear your deepest confusions and disappointments and excitements and joys and prayer requests and fears. He wants to hear them. And there is so much health and emotional deliverance waiting for us if we would just stop and talk to God about it. He wants to hear and give us, I'm pointing that way like you can see, he wants to give us our daily bread. He's desperate 